Hi, I'm James Rocky, and this week on The Lunch Podcast, Alonzo Duralde and Dave White of the TheRapAndMovies.com and co-hosts of a great podcast, Linoleum Knife, visit the show to talk about the new version of RoboCop. Half man, half machine, any good? Don't forget, The Lunch is brought to you by Snoot Films, makers of independent movies like The Guest. I'm James Rocky, and this is The Lunch Podcast, a regular podcast about film and, yes, food, where every week I dine with the creator or critic in the world of film, and then after that midday meal, we talk about uh, whatever's on our minds, specifically this week, the new version of RoboCop. And joining me to talk RoboCop, I'm very pleased to have as uh, both my guests, Mr. Alonzo Duralde of The Wrap. You can find him on uh, Twitter at aduralde. A-D-U-R-I-L-D-E, and Mr. David White of Movies.com, who you can find on Twitter at D. Leland White. Their podcast, Linoleum Knife, is on Twitter at LinoleumCast, and you can find it online at linoleum-knife.com. Gentlemen, thank you very kindly for joining me. Thanks for having us. Pastrami. Uh, we did dine on pastrami from Cantor's, uh, raising you know important theological questions about Robocop. But when I saw you guys at the screening, I wanted to talk with you guys about the film because it strikes me that if you're of a certain age, you know, like if you were 40 when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, you can go, oh my, that was an intriguing night. Yes. But if you were 16, 17, you lost your mind, you lost your business, you lost everything. And I know I, I think that you gentlemen are roughly contemporaneous with me in that. When I hit uh, 17 was when RoboCop came out. So literally on the edge of 17, 1987. Right. On the outskirts of Hamilton, Ontario, a small burgeoning steel town, <laughs> university off in the distance. And, uh, and Dave, you were saying a great anecdote about how the, the whole punk rock scene in Lubbock, Texas, which is yeah. to say both of you really took yes. the RoboCop. I'm 1,000 years old. So uh, I was actually in my very early 20s when it came out. Uh, but same, same as, the, it's the same thing as 17, really. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, if, I, I was in Lubbock, Texas, not a big place. If you were punk rock back in the 80s in Lubbock, Texas, you went the same places that all the other punk rock people did, including the same films. So you would see the same people over and over at Brazil or Repo Man or any movie that was strange or in the case of RoboCop a sort of stealth protest kind of film um, an angry movie you were in all the angry movies essentially right. and so so when my friend uh, Andy she was the punk rockist person of Lubbock Texas she said oh my god we're going to see RoboCop and I said that looks like a, just a dumb action movie uh she said, no, no, Paul Verhoeven, he made Spetters. And I said, I haven't seen Spetters. <laughs> and she said, oh, my God, you have to watch Spetters. And we watched Spetters, and then we uh, went to see RoboCop. She was right. It's a punk rock movie. It was a film that, that, that used the, the language of the moment, the mainstream language of, of action and violence, to talk about violence and to talk about fascism and to talk about 
as we were saying before the this microphone went on about Jesus and about um, Ronald Reagan about Ronald Reagan and and how horrible he was and the the corporatization of everything which is really more everything yeah, we've only yeah. become more like that in the in the decades that have ensued uh, but punk rock died and now we're all resigned to everything being owned by six people and so this RoboCop well. We'll get into why. We'll, well, we'll get into what's wrong yeah, with this the, the original. But I, but I was curious about your timeline. Yeah, no, I, I, I was out. I was twenty that summer. I was uh, it was the summer between my junior and senior year of college. I was uh, interning at a newspaper in Atlanta, and um, I remember originally seeing the poster. You know, RoboCop, half man, half machine, all cop, and thinking. <laughs> it just looked stupid, you know. Yes. And then later, I started reading the early reviews, and I, I didn't, I had not seen Spetters either. I had not seen The Fourth Man, uh, you know, or Soldier of Orange, but I knew who Verhoeven was and that he mattered, and I had not connected the dots that he was making this thing. Um, but yeah, looking back on it, I, 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 even more so probably than I understood at the moment, it was a movie that took a very sort of subversive, anti. Uh, Reagan stand, let's say, uh, and package it in a way that people who loved Ronald Reagan would eat it up. You know, it was it was sort of you know it was putting it in the in the 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 shiny uh, tropes and packaging of an action movie while being about the horrors of violence and being about how we were being screwed over by the man. Um, you know, but but delivering it very successfully to an audience that didn't care or didn't think it cared about the, the movies, the things that the movie cares about. Robocop stomps like a fascist, but he thinks like a revolutionary, or the film, certainly. Uh, the movie does, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that whole thing of it being a shot across the bow, admittedly 1987 might be, you could tell yourself 87 is a bit late to be taking shots of a Reagan administration, but considering that we went into four years of Reagan light yeah, immediately after yes. that. Right. Um, but, I mean... Is it well nigh impossible to make a subversive action film these days? In that there's so much money involved, you cannot, you can no longer take a reasonable sum of money to make an action film. You know, I would say never say never. Probably at the time, if you would ask somebody a year before RoboCop came out, they would say no. Even though RoboCop was, you know, an Orion film, which was not one of the giant studios. That was a smaller one. You know, they weren't quite indie, but they were a little boutique-y on the Hollywood side. And, and they were smarter, and they, you know, had an amazing run there before they lost all their money. boutique plus freaky. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Um, you know, it's amazing the things that come sneaking out. I mean, like, I think people might point to the Lego movie as being a movie that is far more subversive than they would have imagined for a film that is literally a piece of product designed to sell another product. Um, you know, so I, I think it's always possible to sneak these things through. It doesn't happen a lot, but when it does, we notice. Yeah, and the, I mean, it sounds weird to talk about the Lego movie and going, Hey, nice Hegelian dialectic. <laughs> but it is a movie where one uh, mode of thought meets another mode of thought, and there's, it's actually about the synthesis between the two. Sure. And that I found crazy interesting. Not as interesting as having a critique of police brutality being a violent police person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, were, you were saying about... Uh, we were also talking about the Catholicism of the first RoboCop. When I ran into a gentleman at the screening, we were chatting, and I was like, 
I saw the trailers and Murphy gets killed by a car bomb like that. <laughs> my Alex Murphy suffered for his before yeah. he died. Yes, my, my Alex Murphy had the wounds in his side, the holes in his hands and feet. And I just felt like, you know, the whole idea of the sadism of that sequence in the original, you know, demanding fierce and violent retribution, kind of gets taken away in this, in that yeah. you don't see him suffer. It's just... Oh, uh, he barely looks burnt up. Actually, right. he's sort of lying on the sidewalk, and, and, and that's sort of emblematic of how how much of a non-entity the villain in this movie is. Right. I mean, there really, you know, there there is there is a local crime boss who has an in with the police, which is the plot of ri- Drive Along or Ride Along, whatever that movie was called. Uh, you know, and then the roll bounce. Yes, roll bounce. Thank you. And then the other the other bad guys, the corporate guys, aren't they? Don't have as nefarious a conspiracy there's not the web going on you had in the first movie it's just they want money and they want money by introducing this product that is is being fiercely independent i mean i think the 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 closest that the new robocop gets to being about something is in the opening sequence when we see uh the the ocp robots sort of stop and frisking everybody on the streets of tehran um you know that actually felt you know, like they were making a statement, like they were saying something about the world that we live in or using science fiction as a commentary about the world that we are in or are about to enter. You know, and, and, and you could have spun off of that into drone strikes and any number of, of topics. But, you know, it's one of several interesting ideas that is raised by the film and then very quickly abandoned. I mean, this is a movie that... There's squ- a lot of hit and equipment here. This yeah. is a movie that squanders great ideas like in, in superimposed titles yeah. in that when you see the robo-police stopping and frisking everyone in the streets of Stan Stan, wherever it is, a fictional Middle Eastern nation, yeah. you see that the robots are doing retina scans and fingerprint scans and cross-referencing that against some kind of database, something that the first RoboCop probably wouldn't have envisioned, you know, that sure, kind of right. that kind of biometrics engagement. And again, it walks away from it. Walks away from it. And you get this you get this whole question of again a really interesting question. America in this film doesn't have robot law enforcement because there's a law which doesn't give, you know, legal authority to any non-human intelligence. Yeah. And the idea is that they're leaving too much money on the table so they can put a human being inside a robot, they can make $600 billion a year. And, of course, this is all exposition and clunkiness, but getting through it, you just wind up with this movie that doesn't seem to want to say anything. Is that... A- uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, like, the, 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 there's, this, there's a great bit in the middle where uh, they, they test... You know, RoboCop against an actual robot, and his response times are slower. And you know, he there's a there's a hesitation that happens, uh, you know, in, from the human element. And so they basically override it and turn him into a machine that thinks it's a human. And I thought, wow, that's an idea. Yep. Again, not not pursued, not followed. And and I think you know, the, yeah, you're right. There's any number of. You know, every time they, they, whenever the roads fork, and they could have gone down the interesting path of of ideas and and of satire and of of, of relevance, they would rather just make a movie where stuff gets blown up on, on a PG thirteen level. Exactly. Yeah. We, so there's no consequence 
to all the explosions and killings. And again, that's another problem with the PG-13, is that the PG... Yeah. I, I'm a firm believer there should be two kinds of movie <clears throat> villains. Either so cartoonish it can never be emulated, right. or so grim and terrifying that you realize, oh, there's a horrible consequence of taking another human life. Yes. And PG-13 does neither. No. It doesn't do either especially well. And the more you extreme go, you go in any direction, you're going to get an R. <laughs> right. Yeah. PG-13, you can stab someone in the chest, and as long as they don't bleed... That's okay for PG-13. And the thing and is that in, in the real world, if I technically stab someone in the chest, I believe they do bleed. A little bit. Yeah, extensively. A little bit. <laughs> uh, just to elucidate, that whole scene you were talking about, you know, Gary Oldman as a weird, likable Dr. Frankenstein of this <laughs> film where you, you never really hate him and you always get that he's working for a greater good, but he rolls over real easy. Right. The one thing is, oh, well, we have to get, you know, the, the robot takes 2.9 seconds. The human cyborg takes 5.8. Unacceptable. <laughs> Back to the drawing. Like, that's kind of crazy. And you're right. The whole scene where they say, you know, in tactical situations, the visor goes down. His computer will take over and move his body. And he'll think it's him doing everything. As I said earlier, that's not just a dick move. That's a Philip K. Dick movie. Yes. Yeah. And, and <laughs> the kind of idea where, which you could exploit for a series of great scenes, great moments. Sure, and, and it could, you could get into all kinds of issues regarding anything from free will to mechanized warfare to, um, you know, you could, you, could, you could follow that into a whole crazy existentialist, you know, do any of us have control over what we do? Or, you know, why are any of us here? Or are our perceptions true? I mean, like, there are... I would love to see this material in the hands of somebody who really wanted to play around with that and still at the same time make a satisfying genre movie the way that Verhoeven did. And you got the you got the genre guy. They hired, you know, Jose Padilla, who did uh, uh, Elite, Elite Squad. Squad. And Bus 174. And Bus yes. 174. Um, but he is... His, his the screenplay and he and the backers or whoever it is, somebody in there is not interested in the deeper ramifications. I'm betting he was. I mean, you and I know a person who worked on this film, true, and who came with free uh, reports of the tortured process. Yeah, the post of, on this movie of was getting it done lengthy. Well, yeah, but not just the post. I mean, like the whole process. Yeah, and so. Um, so you know when you have a, when you have a, a, a director that is that has proven that he's interesting mm-hmm. um, in other uh, earlier work, and then you put that person into a you put that person into a machine, <laughs> <laughs> wow. and you wow. and you. You give them a big Hollywood you check. Give them, yeah, and then you tell them these are your decisions. <laughs> you know, that's. I mean, so this movie is a metaphor for itself. Is that what you're saying? Kinda, yeah. I, I now I want to watch RoboDop, a film about a robot director of photography <laughs> who only thinks he's choosing a Malick angle. Yeah. I uh, it, it, every minute of this movie, uh, while I did not hate it because I was expecting the worst, and wound up. Enjoying the bloodless violence on whatever level it was enjoyable at. Uh, every moment of this movie felt like like Paul Verhoeven standing like two steps behind me and and being like, no, no, don't take go this way, you know, because everything he has done, including Showgirls, is about 
human suffering and 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 people being you know the worst possible versions of themselves and about the retrieval of your soul but you're probably not going to be able to and you know again and again and again that's his thesis his entire career and that's what made that first version of this so special it had it had all the all the genre film things that you, that that audience wanted and then this weird other voice saying yeah, but here's what I'm really doing. I'm doing this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. Well, it, it, I was just thinking about how in the original RoboCop, you know, you have that he integrates the weird sort of TV stuff into it. You know, the I buy that for a dollar and all that kind and of, yeah, you know. And would you like, yeah. The, yeah, new, the news break. The news break, exactly. Would you like to know more on Starship Troopers? Yeah, exactly. which then segues into Starship Troopers, <laughs> right. where, where not only does he incorporate that sort of uh, media element into the film, but then the entire film itself is basically a, a, a propaganda movie, or rather a satire of a propaganda movie masquerading as an action movie. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's uh, he he's always he's working on a lot of levels. This movie is not working on many levels. He wasn't a child in the Netherlands during the Holocaust for, for nothing. nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you pick up some tough stuff. Yeah. And we were talking about things like you know when Jennifer Eel, who's awesome, and she's film, the best thing in the movie, hands yeah. down. Icily imperious. Wish they had given her more. Wish they had given her Keaton's part. I. Yeah, but her and Baruchel and Keaton are, I think, all in his office talking about what to do with Alex Murphy. Yeah. And the paintings on the wall are definite riffs on. Bacon's three figures at the base uh, studies for three figures at the base of a crucifixion. Yes, and that's a nice tiny nod, but then it disappears. The whole idea that Alex Murphy has to come back for our sins. Exactly. Yeah, and again, the the the, the like if you're observant and you happen to stumble into this movie and you noticed that. You'd think to yourself, oh, what's that going to be later in the film? Nothing. nothing. <laughs> It'll be nothing. Yeah. Now, the, yeah, the death and resurrection is not handled interestingly here. The, the relate, you know, the, we're, we're left with this character who is a good cop and a nice dad and father, and a uh, dad and husband, uh, but that's about all we know about him. And we know that his wife loves him. And that's all we get. But then we keep getting more and more scenes about their relationship as though the crux of the film rested upon it. And there's nothing there but two nice people. And again, you know, the first RoboCop was great because they just said, Alex Murphy's dead. Right. And, and he, as he puts together his own memories, that's how we learn who he was. By right. him sort of trying to piece together the tiny bit, fragments of information that are left in his brain. Uh, but this movie, you know, we could find out more. We just, they don't feel like telling us. And we have to rely upon Joel Flatface Kinnaman to convey emotions <laughs> in, in varying degrees of roboticness because... Another example. Early on, when Gary Oldman is showing somebody, like, you can use these robot hands to play guitar, but right. don't get too emotional because your serotonin level will rise up and yeah. conflict with your robotics. I was really waiting for a whole thing. A payoff of, of that. Yeah. A payoff of, yes. you know, what first time Joel Kinnaman goes after a man who kills him, he's angry and he can't function and gets right. his robo ass kicked. Right. And he has to come to a zen kind of peace with the idea of dispensing justice more than vengeance. Right. I thought, I thought like David Lynch would come out and teach him how to meditate or something. But no, nothing. <laughs> nothing. And, and, and again, I always find that pseudoscientific stuff is better when it has rules and when you enforce them. Yeah, yeah you know, yes. especially given that, I mean, like, as annoyed as I am by screenplays that only give you information just so it can pay off later, it is even more annoying to have them give you information that doesn't pay off later yeah. if it's not some sort of, if it's going to illuminate character or the world that we're in or something, then fine. I love a nice throwaway 
bit of information that doesn't have to pay off and doesn't have to be resolved. But yeah, you're going to set up something like don't let your emotions cloud your robot brain, then that better lead to something later. As we track your serotonin levels as if they were your health bar in Super Mario Brothers, because... <laughs> the heartbeats in the apple. <laughs> yeah, it's horrible. Oh, God, it's horrible, horrible science. Uh, did, did, did you feel, David, like all of the new stuff... All of the new stuff, Dave was like terrible. Like, first of all, I love seeing like Samuel L. Jackson. Makes me feel like I'm at a formal, a formal affair. There we go. So keep going. Uh, I mean, the fact that Samuel Jackson is essentially dressed like an extra from Network is kind of yeah. astonishing. He's got the majestic pompadour, mm-hmm. the yachtsman's blazer. <laughs> he really looks like a Nixon era throwback anchor. Yeah. But did that stuff work for you as like? Way way too long for its exposition dump and a really tone deaf ending. Um, it I felt like it was the movie trying to be topical, <laughs> to be topical, to be you know, here's here's Black Bill O'Reilly, you right? Know? And 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 the idea of that could have been really fascinating to 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 go into, and they didn't. Uh, but in those moments, I thought, okay, well, the film is trying to be a little bit like. Its predecessor, uh, and again, much with everything else, much as everything else in the, in the film, it, just, it didn't it didn't push hard enough or far enough because it didn't come off like a satire of Fox News. It came off just like Fox News. It wasn't anything other than a recreation of something that we could see. By turning on the TV with right slightly now. better holograms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you know you could have used that character as a way to mold and manipulate public opinion and get them in the room with the OCP people right but you never given that that, that his character doesn't exist outside of the studio like if there had been some way that we see where people are adopting the talking points or seeing his image everywhere like something that implies that this guy actually for all we know he's on the lowest rated news network in this in this world you know and has no one's listening to him like there there needs to be a a then springboard into the rest of the movie in which he does not appear where we see that his message is resonating and thus that's why he's dangerous or whatever right we don't know if Samuel L. Jackson is Art Bell or Tom Brokaw we just have no clue of his idea of legitimacy (laughs) just great graphics and again as we were saying before this movie has no Dick Jones. Worse than having no Dick Jones or Clarence Boddicker, it has no Jones-Boddicker collusion right, right. that really kicks the original film into third gear, where it's a matter of, you know, oh, well, we're really interested in business as usual. And, yeah. and I, is that just a problem of writing? Is it a problem that nobody just want to say, look, we need more of an actively B, capital B bad person in this movie? I, I, heaven only knows what kind of notes this thing got and how many drafts this script went through. Probably I mean, the size of several phone books. Exactly. I mean, you know, I remember when, when, they, when, when Jonathan Demme did the remake of The Manchurian Candidate, and he sort of and basically, what they they turned the premise, the twist, instead of it being that a right wing anti communist you know congressman is actually in collusion with the communists, they basically made it into sort of a weak tea Dick Cheney Halliburton situation. Right. Whereas, if you wanted to make a movie now that had the impact that the Manchurian Candidate had in the early sixties, you would have Dick Cheney and Osama bin Laden be in cahoots. Yep. Yes. You know that's an interesting story. That says something. And I think you're right. The the the, the Jones Boddicker conspiracy in the first movie. 
um, you know, it, it gives you the idea of like the public face of a corporation versus their private agenda. And this one, it's really the, the private agenda is just to make more money and yawn, you know. Yeah. And, and you know, the whole idea of <clears throat> in the first film, OCP took over the Detroit police lock, stock and barrel to prove it couldn't work aside from their expensive solutions. The classic Grover Norquist. Right. Star of the Beast thing, or or, yeah. or you know any 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 prison system in America now, just about yeah, and and, and that whole thing of that level of planning. Michael Keaton seems like a lovely guy or a horrible guy. I'd like to make a few more bucks, but you don't have that turtleneck wearing, cat stroking sense of megalomania. Yeah, there's no the thing you don't know in this movie. Right, you know, there, there's there's no there's no other thing going on on the surface that's truly diabolical. That would then go, oh, well, no, yes, he must be stopped. Not really, no. And then the other conspiracy, the people who blow him up in the car and have connections with the police force, that just feels like, you know, any any movie where somebody gets yelled at to turn in their badge. You know, like, we've seen that a million times. All those corporate clean surfaces mm. here are just, they're not hiding anything. They're just clean surfaces. There's no, there's they're no just un- blank space. <laughs> there's no yeah. underbelly. They think yeah. they're lovely people doing a lovely thing. And again, that's a whole, it's a confusion about Oldman's character where I found myself going, is he a son of a bitch or what? <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying I need a signpost, but just a little bit more direction in the character's arc. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it does vacillate between him being sort of man of science, but then also, you're right, he does, he does make fatal compromises uh, you know, ethically speaking, to keep his work going, and but but yeah, the the the, the film can't give him enough complexity to make that a, an actual character facet. It's just sort of a it just turns him into well, what am I this scene? You know, yeah, just spin the wheel and whatever's required to get us to the door, I'm going to do exactly one pleasure, <laughs> one pleasurable uh, thing. I, I'll just like give a little bit of props to is I liked the scene where they took him apart. And you see What's that all he is is a head and some pulsing lungs and the hand. <laughs> that, I loved watching the lungs move inside. Their little lung aquarium. Visually <laughs> pleasurable for me because I'm gross. I Watching that scene, I thought of two things. One is the whole uh, Mr. Show uh, sketch about the fan of Titanica. <laughs> yes. Where the heavy metal band goes to cheer up one of her supporters yes. in the hospital. And because he had listened to her song, Try Suicide, and was so taken with the message, he tried suicide by jumping into a vat of acid. So when they pull the sheet off from David Cross's head, it's this little spindly burnt up two foot long body. Beef with jer- a full size head. Beef, beef jerky like <laughs> Which is one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. And the other thing is that, you know, as a friend of mine says, Special effects these days seem to exist only to tell you where the state of the art isn't. Yeah. In that everyone's more interested in does that look cool yes. than does that look right? And I was, because I, I thought, even if I were making a cyborg, like, why do you keep that hand? It doesn't connect to anything. Yeah. You've got to run blood to it. Or, you know, people's rib cages have been doing a great job of keeping our lungs inside <laughs> for years. I feel like stripping them down to just a lungquarium and giblets for gravy. <laughs> In that moment, though, first time seeing it, without processing thoughts, my first thought is, that looks cool. Not, <laughs> that, not does it look right. Yeah. That not, looks would cool. not does it make sense. Later, when I'm thinking about it, I'll think, okay, well, that, that can't, why, why the hand? <laughs> but in, the, in that first moment, 
Well, that, 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 that little bendy rack by itself, cool. the hand. The yeah. hand, the hand. I think it promulgates the illusion that it's not just a head stuck onto a robot. You know? Right. It gives it a little little touch of. There's a little bit. So there's some meat left on those bones. You know. Is it wrong that the RoboCop remake really gave me a hankering to go back and revisit if RoboCop Two is in fact Ugh. here that Tom Noonan. <laughs> Is pretty great. That was one of the things we were. We were. I was saying to Dave. I think the part of the reason that people are kind of giving this movie a pass is a the idea of remaking Verhoeven's RoboCop is. It seems like such uh, high treason that the fact that it's not a complete disaster somehow vindicates it in a way. And then B, the RoboCop franchise itself was so cheapened by two and three and the TV show or whatever the cartoon or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Some other. Yeah. So so because kids love hard R rated science yes. fiction. Exactly. So as somebody said, look, it's the second best RoboCop movie. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing: there are problems in RoboCop too, but I like how a it completely mocks the Reagan era hysteria about drugs. Mm. I, there's a bunch of there's a it's a sequel about sequelizing its lead character. Is that and the one that had John Glover keeps turning up in like? PSAs or something? I think so. It, it's Tom Noon is a bad guy. There's like a teen killer who eventually pays the ultimate price. And there's also the great joke that uh, RoboCop is DOS while RoboCop 2 is more visual and intuitive like an Apple. There's, there's, some, there's some quality computer programming jokes in RoboCop 2 and a really freaky shot of him scrambling up an elevator shaft and stop motion as opposed to CGI. Mm. I saw it when it came out and not since, so I barely remember it. And I never saw RoboCop 3. Barely remember it is more than I remember it. No. And, and Frank Miller wrote it, right? I think Frank Miller took a couple stabs at it. Frank Miller is, of course, one of the most singular hacks of our time. <laughs> uh, anybody who wrote 300 deserves nothing oh. but mockery. And also for, for basically ru- between... Between the grim darkness and pouches, comic books really got ruined in the 90s. <laughs> and we can blame Frank Miller for oh, half of look, that. His, a lot of his stuff was great. The pouches I blame on Rob Liefeld. But the yes. pou- nobody can nobody <laughs> can forgive the pouches. But, I mean, every Frank Miller is just this... You know, he's one of those writers who, who thinks that banality should be received as infinite wisdom. <laughs> and, and that, and he's so... He's so far to the right that it just goes around and starts becoming hilarious. Right. Well, uh, you look. I, if he gets for me, he gets a lifetime pass for for the the first Dark Knight series and for the Daredevil run that he did with Mazzucchelli. But then again, I didn't see the spirit, so you know I'm more inclined to be kind. I did not. You are significantly lucky. That's what I heard. You were born under a four leaf clover <laughs> as a seventh son. <laughs> Of some Seven Sun. Um, is it weird how excited I am to hate watch the 300 sequel, prequel, whatever it is? <laughs> uh, whatever gets you through the night. I'm looking forward to enjoying yet another series of what seem like violent oil paintings. <laughs> uh, yeah, Robocop 2 was, was written by Frank Miller. Um, d- this thing got trounced, didn't it? Like it did. It came in like second, third, fourth at the box uh, office. It, not second. It, it was in the top five, but the Lego Movie and About Last Night were number one and two. That's got to be depressing. Well, I think they probably uh, they want to see how how international does before they completely start rending garments. 
Uh, you know, if it, if it does well in China or Brazil or Europe or whatever, then they'll feel better about it, I suppose. Did they film a special Chinese ending? <laughs> Where he just goes to, he just, he spends more time in the, spends, that's the other Glorious thing. People's Robocop. <laughs> is the whole idea of we now judge for, judge blockbusters, blockbusters that I made solely for the foreign market. Yeah. Solely for the foreign market. It matters a lot more how they do overseas. I don't like that. I don't like yeah. that one bit. I don't want the people of China casting too much of a vote on how I construct my culture because they don't get to vote on anything else. I mean, <laughs> when, when, not, when we start catering to non-democracies with the cultural constructs of an ostensible democracy, isn't that problematic? Yes. Uh, yeah, there are things that have come up where it just seems a little creepy. And, you know, then there's the whole issue of, like they were saying, the, the alternate endings, you know, the... You know the movie, like the movie Twenty One and Over, which was about which 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 in China is a a, a cautionary tale about you know partying with white people, basically. Yeah. Right. There are uh, there are extended <laughs> scenes in Iron Man. Right. Exactly. Iron Man yeah. Three made yes. for to justify Chinese money and for the Chinese market. And look, you know, and and if it's just a matter of like, look, I, I've got a five minute segment with Ashwari Arai because it's going to do better in 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 uh, Mumbai. Fine, that's one thing. But if you are either dumbing down or avoiding certain kind of political stances or uh, uh, sex or violence standards. Not casting, Afri- not casting actors of color. Or that. Because they don't, quote-unquote, play well internationally. Which means, congratulations, we're exporting racism. Oh, <laughs> Is that a thing? Is that really happening? Oh, that, that's very much a factor. Oh, wow, it's like flat-out, like, yeah, you can't... I mean, outside of Will Smith and Denzel Washington, say. Wow. I don't think you have that many other people where... You know, I mean... I mean, the discussion has come up about the Marvel movies. Is that the Marvel movies are, you know, for all of their modern business technique... These are all ideas that a drunk guy came up with on his lunch break in the 60s. <laughs> and so, you know, the idea is that, you know, diversity in the Avengers means you have one hot redhead and the rest are dudes. And I really feel like, you know, it's not, it's not even a heteronormative or white paradigm. It's a retronormative paradigm where yeah. all of our revived cultural ideas, Batman, James Bond, Marvel Comics, are from this age when... Hey, Tootsie, get me a drink. And I don't like I don't like trawling around in Don Draper's uh, subconscious. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, sadly, yeah, because you, 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 the fact that that the Lego Movie to call that up again is apparently the first big screen rendering of Wonder Woman. Yeah, you know that is a little appalling, given uh, what DC like basement dwellers have gotten movies over the years. Well, I mean, it's like I would it's like, well, goodness, you couldn't possibly have wasted more money on it than Green Lantern. <laughs> Uh, getting back to RoboCop. Getting back to RoboCop. Um, what things from this did you like? Did you want more of? I wanted more of like Jennifer Eel yes. and, and and Jay, Jay Baruchel. Jay Baruchel is a weasel from marketing. Going, guys, we already sent this out. We already sent the collateral with this design out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I, I was, I, I was, and I, I don't know how much of it was in the writing and how much of it was just them. But yeah, I, I wanted to follow them back to their office while RoboCop went back to the lab. Like I was much more interested in their conference call at four thirty than anything else that was happening in the movie. And and you, sir? I wanted more Abby Cornish. And I wanted Jane Campion to come in and direct all her scenes. Robo-loss? Yeah. <laughs> Robo-top-of-lake? Robo Robo-bright-star. Right. That's, 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 I, I am... Uh, I'm a fan of hers. And I, I, I feel she's being misused. 
Oh. And I, and, and I do not, it, it hurts me inside when I see really talented women as the wife, the girl. The girl. Uh, it, 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 it bothers me endlessly. Um, and I, 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 I don't know what the I, answer to it is, you know. Uh, it, please someone, don't go out and break the sound barrier. Someone's going to play the wife. Can't the wife be somebody? It, 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 it drives me crazy. I was doing an interview with a, a female actress the other night, and it was a whole thing of just like so many questions for her were about her characters as defined by the relationship with the male characters. Yeah. And she was in a film where... You know, it starts out being very focused on a male protagonist, but then it follows her, and the omniscient narration follows her as well. And she said, you know, roughly quoting, when I first read this and I knew who was in it, I first thought, oh, I'm going to be the girl, and that's fine. And then 32 pages, and it takes this awesome twist, and the narrative changes, and I'm not just the girl, and that felt better. But I just thought of somebody, this actress who, and I'm not being coy here, but certainly is somebody who's done films, somebody yeah. who's been on renowned television programs, is like, I, at this point in my career, will take something where I'm the girl, and I know my place. Yeah. Crazy depressing. Well, uh, did, did you yeah. read Karen Valby's piece in EW about what if Matthew McConaughey were a woman? Oh, would he get a chance to unscrew his career? Yeah. Like, yeah. Is, is anybody offering Kate Hudson similarly interesting roles to undo all the crap movies that she made with Matthew McConaughey, you know? Which, uh, and, you know, the, it'll be a... Perhaps great, not the best example. It'll be a brave I mean. and true world when a female, mediocre female actress gets a chance to do an action epic as much as a uh, mediocre male actress. But I also think that in terms of charisma and pure charm, you can make a strong distinction between Mr. McConaughey, even at his worst, and Miss Hudson at her best. Again, not... Again, not... not, 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 not that's an apple and an orange. But, but, but for women in general, yeah, they are. Right. They're, it's a whole thing of, oh, you're a guy and you... You know, Joaquin, if, if a female... If Amy Adams had made I'm Not Here and grown out a beard and acted crazy for press <laughs> tours and destroyed a James Gray film through it, I'm not sure she'd be working again quite as swiftly as Mr. Phoenix is. Mm, right. uh, there's a bit more latitude for bad behavior. The the one line I loved in the, the meeting of the unholy three, Jennifer Ely's character and uh, Mr. Baruchel's character, Mr. Oldman, is the whole idea of what's bigger than a hero? Oh, a dead hero. <laughs> and I thought of that line from, is it Mother Courage? You know, unhappy the land without heroes? No, unhappy the land that needs them. Yep. Which made me think that if you had made this Robobrecht, if it was about <laughs> manufacturing an idea as firmly as it was about manufacturing the suit and the guy inside it. Yeah. That would have been great. And a great twist. Like, yeah, that's the whole thing is we're going to prove a robot. We're going to prove through Murphy's heroic death. Right. That, you know, we, we still can't afford to lose. We can't kill these brave men and women twice. Therefore. We have to go full robot. We have, we, we never, <laughs> and you don't want to go full robot. <laughs> Uh, what I would just we were talking about things the fact that you know the thing and the fly are both strong remakes by singular filmmakers but sure. what I'm wondering is everybody thinks oh my god you could never ma- remake Robocop and yet it happened what are the two things you think could and should never be remade oh my uh, Citizen Kane what's left <laughs> I would think I was hoping for something a bit more you know <laughs> of the same vein Citizen Kane I think is the go to um, it's funny so many Hitchcock movies got badly remade as TV movies in the 90s yes you know uh, um, I always I always think about Big Trouble in Little China 
which is a shambling, ambling, meandering mess of a movie with almost no structure. And the central joke is that its central hero isn't. And yet it, and yet it completely works. It's like bad delivery food. Uh, you could not remake Blazing Saddles. That movie exists in a very specific place in the culture when you could get away with things that you cannot get away with now. I don't even think a black filmmaker could get away with Blazing Saddles today. It's, it's like, it's like it's that, it was a brief, magical two-week window between, between terrifying racism and stifling political correctness. <laughs> <laughs> David, your, your thought? I, I'm, I'm, I'm stumped. I don't know what's left to not remake. Spice World. No. Um, well, um, yeah. But <laughs> I... Uh, if they would come back yes, for, it, for a sequel, be, totally. Would, yeah, yeah. would you insist on having um, Martin McKinney back too? <laughs> yes. Excellent. Um, you know, I, I, I think I'm going to have to pass on this game show question because I don't, I don't know what is unassailable. You oh, Hazard oh, Balthazar? Well, okay, but that, <laughs> no one's going to remake that. Like, if I could select, you know, my five, you know... Favorite films okay. of all time. What if there's like a there's not what if there's be, a what if there's no a, one's clamoring for that? To what be if there is a Babe type movie where the central character is a donkey and it takes off huge and somebody <laughs> thinks, okay, we have to find another vehicle for this star donkey. I know we'll remake Oh Hazard Balthus. Are you sure? Are you sure they're not going to remake the Disney sports film Gus? The donkey that kicked field goal. Well, that, maybe maybe it's the Gus remake that becomes yeah. the hit. Right, and right. And then First, Balthazar the Gus, is the fallback for Because a, the for donkey's saying, I want to do serious work. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to, I literally don't want to make a jackass out of my <laughs> The it Disney would, stuff was great, but I really want to show all the colors in my paint box. Yeah. That, I, that, everything is going to be remade. Unless it's something... So Celine and Julie go both. Oh yeah, like unless it's that, <laughs> unless it's you know, unless it's 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 a uh, 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 stalker, <laughs> or, you know, it's not. That's those films are. At the same time, Solaris got remade. Yes. yes, in a way where it lost all the money, and so did yes. Breathless. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe someone will try. So nothing, nothing is stripes. (laughs) It'll be racing stripes. (laughs) If but I mean, if nothing is sacred, that doesn't mean that everything is profane. There are good remakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the About Last Night remake. Uh, It was fun. I enjoyed it. I laughed. I think Kevin Hart and Regina Hall together are 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 sort of crackly together, and I'm really into them. It's a much better a, movie if you think couple. of it as a remake of About Last Night and not as a screen version of Sexual Perversity in Chicago. Well, this About Last Night has about as much to do with Sexual Perversity yeah. in Chicago right. as well, About Last Night has to do with About Last Night. Yeah, the, the new one has less to do with Mammoth than even the first go-round did, but on its own, you know, freewheeling merits, it's actually fairly entertaining, and, you know, in a week that gave us three remakes of 80s movies, it was the one that I would, under any circumstances ever consider seeing again you know you know what really had a chance to be truly crazy and and squandered every second the psycho was, remake was endless love oh wow well, yeah. because if you took if you took the original novel and its strangeness and you took the 81 film and its strangeness and you exploded it even harder you could have made a really balls out bonkers movie and instead, they made a film version of the song, and, right. and that is, and and that, and in fact, I shouldn't even sully the great name of that song by 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 comparing it to this remake. It, 
they they took everything that was strange about if those. seventeen if seventeen magazine had short stories the, the new endless love would have been <laughs> yeah it could have been near the back crazy. before Anthony Lane's film review exactly after a profile of life in China <laughs> if seventeen were the New Yorker because if the rule is if the rule is we make a bad movie and make it cool yeah then then nineteen eighty one's endless love yeah, they were halfway a, there is a bad movie <laughs> yes that could have been remade. Excellently in a in a in a crazy, perverse, passionate sort of, sort of way. Yeah, um, that did not happen. But yeah, if it's something, if something is garbage, that's the one I want to see remade. You want yeah, to take better. you want to take that trash and nurture something new in yeah, it until it yeah, can sprout. Absolutely, with those nutrients. Like I, I suspect it was probably already a remake of a French film, and I'm not remembering of what. But if you were to remake, you know, Stanley Donnan's last film, Blame It on Rio, you could probably do a much better job of it because Blame It on Rio is terrible, but there's kind of a fun premise to it. Speaking of Stanley Donnan, if you re if you uh, 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 remade, what's it called? Staircase. Oh God! Take yes. that film and make it. A, a story about the oppression of this couple in the late '60s, instead of this a, a movie that assumes they, des- they deserve to be miserable. Yeah, right. yeah. And so that's 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 what I'm talking about. Do yeah. that. Yeah, that's why that's why the great remake of the modern age is Ocean's Eleven because people fondly remember the idea of that movie and the 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 whole sort of Rat Pack thing. But they don't all the Don Draper elements exactly. But nobody, but nap. nobody remembers no. the actual damn movie, which is overlong and kind of a slog, and which involves Frank Sinatra and his crew robbing four casinos simultaneously with less difficulty than I have dropping off my dry cleaning. Yeah. <laughs> With a lot of things again, well remembered, not especially good, but people remember the premise. Yes. Much like you know, um, much as the whole Eddie Murphy Doctor Doolittle disposes of Rex Harrison and a pink sea snail, and I miss all of that stuff from my Anthony Newley filled childhood. Yes, don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> but it's a really good idea, you sure. know. Um, I, for one, have wondered, you know, why we have yet to get a remake of Valley of Guanji, mm. the Ray Harryhausen Tex-Mex riff on King Kong, yeah. right. where a box canyon reveals a still living tyrannosaur. I think you could remake that and make all of the money with it. But, you know, again, you're starting with a not good, or at least not distinctive film. Right. We've been talking with Alonzo Duralde and Dave White. Alonzo writes reviews for The Wrap. And David, of course, you can find his work at movies.com. They co-host the Linoleum Knife podcast, which is uh, fascinatingly about film and much more. You can find it at linoleum-knife.com and on Twitter at linoleumcast. But before we do our final goodbyes, uh, we dined on uh, sandwiches from Cantor's. Yeah. Uh, I used to live in this neighborhood. Cantor's used to be an easy schlep for me. Yes. Um, and I mean, it's a little rundown. It's a little bigger than it should be, but it's still good deli and where it's not good it feels authentic is that pretty much the takeaway absolutely yeah there's there's nothing uh, slick or a prefab about it it is the real deal and even if the food even everything on the menu may not be perfect but uh it has an ambience that cannot be uh imitated uh, and uh, you know franchised and the ceiling is beautiful and if you're lucky rodney on the rock is going to be there right. in the booth to your left perhaps with a bangle or someone from the three o'clock, so anything can happen at Cantor's. When Roddy Bigenheimer goes to Cantor's, do we bring him a child seat? Because he is not a substantive he's a, man. He's a short little dude, so tiny. Oh. Um, and also, have you ever had drinks at the Kibitz Room, the attached not bar? Not once. 
It is the kind of place where you go in for a drink and leave some 40 years later. Like, there are guys in there who are like, what, what, when did you come into the bar? I felt really bad about Nixon quitting. And I never left. No windows, no nothing. But the one great thing is, is that uh, when they do have bands there, it tends to be pickup bands made of classic L.A. studio cats. Right. So it's all these, you know, eminence grises of the bass or the, the sitar. It's like, oh, yeah, that guy played with Jimmy. Or, oh, that guy played with the Stones. And it's right. like, really? That, that, that piece of beef jerky over there? Played? <laughs> and, I mean, time's arrow moves in one direction. Hopefully one day I'll be lucky enough to be that old. But the Kibbutz Room is a fascinating swamp of depravity. Do they and have all the flavors of Manischewitz? Uh, I, I've never asked for some Manischewitz there, uh, but thank you for reminding me of Manischewitz as I just watched Mad Men Season 5. <laughs> By 8.30 p.m., I am in pajamas reading a book in bed, and so the Kibbutz Room will probably never see me. That's what... Yeah. All alone. I'm, a, I'm 85 years old, oh. and, and I have to go to sleep. I respect that. Yeah. And when you guys feel like Delhi is Kenters your go-to place, are you Langer's people? You're near Greenblatt. Greenblatt's, Greenblatt's people. We order. Too. We get Greenblatt's delivered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we we if we're if we're going to Cine Family, we'll often go to Cantor's. Right, Cantor's yeah. of course being located very near Cine Family, the right. not-for-profit uh, rep house that does great programming and yes. one of the treasures of Los Angeles. Yes, in the we, home of the former uh, silent movie theater. We can't give it enough credit, we can't give it enough good graces, and if you don't feel like a pita, the pita place that's closer, a Cantor sandwich before of a silent movie theater. Yes. Is really, really good. We were also talking about how we kind of preferred that section of Fairfax when it was 70% Jews and 30% hipsters. Yes. And not 30% Jews and 70% hipsters. Yes. If only because, not only my respect for Jewish community and neighborhood traditions, but also because Hasidim don't make me feel like they're going to knock me over coming down the sidewalk very fast on a skateboard. On a skateboard. Yeah. That's really become the number one hazard down there. Oh, yeah. Supreme. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes, but in, bet- in between, like in between places selling Judaica, right. you know, places like Supreme and the Hundreds and the Odd Future Shop, and the I vegan, keep... the vegan shoe store, yeah, yeah. All, all the places where people line up to get the shoes, they're immediately going to turn around and flip on eBay. I don't get. I never. I, whenever I see people waiting in line for any consumer good, I think. Does that cure cancer? Well, there are a lot of Russians in this neighborhood. That's so very, maybe very nostalgia thing. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the the best thing in that neighborhood, I, to me, in many ways, is the discount restaurant supply place right at Fairfax oh, yeah. and Beverly, mm-hmm. where you could outfit your apartment's kitchen at quite a pretty penny. Yeah, if you don't mind things that are made in China. Yeah. And the abandoned Fairfax Theater, where I saw what's, Fantastic Mr. Fox. What's going to happen to that place? I think it's being turned into condos or destroyed. It's a lemonly property, but of a, a friend with whom I went to see Fantastic Mr. Fox at it, yeah. went a few weeks later, and they said you could see stars through the holes in the roof during really? the film. Like it had fallen apart. That yeah, we, we, we did some Outfest programs there in their last few years, and it was getting fairly ramshackle in there, unfortunately. The, it was not getting love from the landlords, and then they just they shut her down. And I, I attended a protest, uh, but it accomplished nothing. Because <laughs> there's no good parking around there, unfortunately. That was what killed it. That's, always, that's the problem with, with L.A. is where do you park? Where are you going to park? Where are you going to park? And that's like why people go to the Landmark Theater you know, over anything else, because it's like, oh, there's parking here and it's free. Right, it's yeah. why the new Beverly is so, or the new art is so, are so often pains in the keister. Mm. True. We have a secret parking space for the new Beverly. 
Wow. Yes. You're not going to talk about it here. Turn off the microphone. We'll take. We'll take it offline. Yeah. And we're back. No, I'm getting it. <laughs> we've been talking RoboCop remakes and the Reagan era, as well as LA's great moments of Delhi on the Lunch Podcast. I'm your regular host. James Rocky, my guests this week, who I was incredibly fortunate to have, were Mr. Alonzo Duralde of The Wrap. And you can find him on Twitter at A Duralde, D U R A L D E, and also Dave White of Movies.com. You can find David on Twitter at D Leland White. And also, if you want to hear more of Alonzo and Dave, and why wouldn't you? If you're not already listening to their terrific podcast, Linoleum Knife, you can find that at linoleum knife.com. And on Twitter at LinoleumCast. Was there anything I failed to mention, gentlemen? Uh, I, not a single thing. I was about to thank you for your participation, but I really want to say thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for your hospitality and for the sandwiches and for the uh, scintillating discussion. You've been listening to The Lunch, a regular podcast about film and food. You can find us on the, on the Twitter at The Lunch Podcast. I'm your regular host, James Rocky. And again... Thank you for listening. And between now and the next time you tune in, go to the movies with your friends, have a meal afterwards, and talk about it. It's a good thing. Yeah.
overdose. It's an overdose.